The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 121 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. And it is so good to be back. You know, we took a, a three-week break, and but it feels like it was forever. It feels like it was a long time. I want to really thank those of you who reached out during the break. I got some very kind messages of people asking when we were coming back and telling me how much they missed the show and how much they enjoy it. That just meant the world to me, so thank you. We have a wonderful show for you today, but before we get into this week's conversation, I do want to thank some reviewers. Uh, Mike Cannell, one of my best friends in the world, uh, left me a great review on Facebook. Mike, I sure appreciate it. And on Apple iTunes, we got great reviews, all five-star reviews from, uh, these are their usernames, BLDS2, uh, be a donor, Shelley, and uh, Nana has it all, as well as Macaron Fairy, all left us wonderful five star reviews. Thank you so much. On a- Apple Podcasts, which is what drives a lot of the business, um, you can either leave a review, which means you've written it out, or a rating. We now are up to almost 250 ratings. But more importantly, we are up to over 100 reviews. So thank you so much. It really helps us uh, to get our message out there. And we do have a five-star average, which is just amazing. So thank you so much. We appreciate the reviews. Uh, This week, my guest on the show, Mike Barrett, is a neighbor of mine and a friend and such an important guy in the mental health community and just one of the smartest, best people I know we talk about his life, but we also, he has great tips for people who either themselves are struggling with addiction or have a family member struggling with addiction. And Mike is fantastic. And you're going to love this conversation. And coming up this week in my latter day life, I'll talk a little bit about resolutions that can be done minute by minute. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here in the Latter-day Live studios, it is such an honor and a privilege and a thrill actually for me to have a friend of mine who is a leading authority in the mental health community. Mike Barrett, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am beyond thrilled. Uh, I will tell our audience that uh, you and I have known each other now for, how, how long ago did you move into our neighborhood? I think uh, 13 years, yeah. something like that. Yeah, and Mike was in uh, our bishopric for a long time, and uh, we just, I've been so grateful. Mike is a, I will, you would never say it yourself, but I will say Mike is a pillar in our neighborhood and our ward and and just an awesome guy. I'm excited to hear about your life. Mike is truly a leader in the mental health world and has done so many good things but before we get into all that, let's hear a little bit about your early life. Mike, where are you from? Our family grew up in many small towns in Utah, Heber, Copperton. I don't I even know where Copperton time. is. It's I was just... born in Heber. Copperton is up uh, against the Kennecott Copper Mine Ah, okay. on the west side of Salt Lake Valley. 
so small towns. Uh, my father was a seminary teacher, and um, so we followed his work where he went. We ended up uh, in Orem when I was about eight years old. Yeah, and grew up there mostly. So, what were you into uh, when you were uh, when you were growing up? Well, we grew up on a farm. My dad bought a farm because he wanted us to learn how to work. We planted 400 fruit trees, planted, grew, pruned, sprayed, picked. That was our life, basically. <laughs> Did you love that? Did you love the farm? Or at least in when you while you were growing up, did you enjoy it? Well, <laughs> I think at, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning irrigating uh, wasn't always fun. Yeah. Um, and, and the hard work on long Saturdays, every Saturday, but, um, it was so fun working with the family Yeah, and, and we were a close family yeah. and, uh, I'm grateful. It wasn't always fun, but I'm yeah. very grateful. And clearly you were raised in work. the church. I mean, father's yes. a seminary teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Later became a BYU professor of religion and church history. Wow. So you so. were steeped in all these things. That's awesome. Yes. Um, what were your, what were your hobbies? Were you into, I, I, I see the problem is I know a little bit about you. I know that music is a big part of your yeah. life. Was that, uh, when you were young, did that start when you were young? Yeah. My dad was a swing jazz drummer. Oh, no kidding. He was the, the drummer in the, in the, uh, army's, uh, swing jazz band that toured the United States and he was their drummer and that's awesome. He earned his way through college uh, <laughs> with his own 17 or 21-piece orchestra. Sheesh. So he, I learned drumming from him in the beginning and then rapidly uh, switched over to rock and roll. Yeah. But, so did you play when you were in high school? Yes. Yeah. I started when I was about 15 years old playing in a band. And yeah. Still still am. It's been yeah, a long time. that's awesome. What's the name of your band now? It's called Thunderbuck Ram. So you get done with high school, growing up, uh, what was the next step for you? Getting married young. You know, yeah. I dated my, I married my high school sweetheart, Karen. And uh, so we got married. She she graduated from high school in May, and we got married in July. And uh, I was barely 19. She was barely 18. And we started having kids, and we never looked back. That is quick, Mike. So, I know. You were married very young. You beat the odds. <laughs> we did beat every odd. Yeah. Truly. You're 19 years old, married. You're getting ready to start having kids. What uh, What was the thought on, on being able to support a family? Being a Gandhi dancer on the railroad, doing hard labor and many <laughs> other different jobs and trying to make a living as a professional musician. Um, Did you try to make a, a living as a professional musician for a while? Yeah, so I'll make that brief. You know, we played no, bars, clubs, uh, high schools, colleges. We even uh, played on the big stage as a second billing concert act. We played with Fleetwood Mac, Joe Welch. What? You played uh, with Fleetwood Leslie Mac Leslie Weston Joe Mountain, James Gang, and a bunch of famous bands. I we, did not know any of this, so Mike. We did a lot of, we recorded 50 or 60 songs in the recording studio, and we did very well. We were a great original material band, but we never got a big recording contract. What was the band called at that time? Thunderbuck Ram. Oh, still? Yeah. You've got to be kidding. So all <laughs> these years later, Thunderbuck yeah. Ram is still yeah. 
still rolling. What was it like taking a big stage? I mean, I assume if you're opening for Fleetwood Mac, it's in a big arena. Well, we what I remember is playing with Black Oak, Arkansas. I think we were playing for 15,000 people. That seemed like a lot of people. That is a and, lot of people. Uh, it's just like any other thing. You know, you get on the stage and you're scared to death. <laughs> but once you start playing, that fear goes away and you're having so much fun. Yeah. What was it that made you think, okay, music is, is not, not my full-time future? Well... A few factors there. Number one is having eight children and try, and trying to be there for them. Um, How quickly did you have your, your children? You have, you have eight kids. We have eight kids, um, and the youngest is 29, and the oldest is 45. Yeah. So they were all pretty compressed that's tight. together. Yeah. I mean, that's really so, one every other year. Yeah, I think... We were in our late 30s when we were done having our eight children, so it was pretty quick and yeah. had a lot of kids. So, so it was family. It was also the desire to get an education and ending up doing graduate work, and, mm. which was demanding. And then also getting out of the world of drugs and alcohol and was yeah. something that I truly needed to do. Yeah. So lots of fa- factors there. Yeah. So then, uh, what was the next step then? Hey, Thunderbuck Ram is not going to be a full-time career. What did you do? Well, as I said, hard labor and other things that taught me that I wanted to get an education. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So where did you go to school? I went to school at BYU. Mm. Um, all of my undergraduate and graduate degrees were there. Did you mm. know what you wanted to study when you got to BYU? Uh, no. I quickly grabbed up majors and interests and uh, everything from pre-medicine to uh, graphics design, industrial design. Mm. Uh, I wanted to do architecture. Um, lots of interest, geology, biology. Yeah. But anyways, ended up landing in psychology, and I think I changed my major five times <laughs> on my search. You're of, a renaissance man. What do I want to do? Yeah. <laughs> What was it about psychology that drew you in? What drew me in the most is what they do not teach much of, which is um, love of people, mm-hmm. helping others, um, the prospect of healing from emotional and mental illness and addiction is what truly drew me in. Yeah. Was there something personal? Was there a catalyst did you know someone who had struggled and and you saw the need because of that, or did you just feel drawn to it? I think I was always a pretty sensitive kid. Yeah. Part of that's being a third-born child. You know, you know what's going on with everybody, but you feel pretty helpless to do anything about it. Oh, that's interesting. But you want to. Huh. You really want to. So uh, I think I was always a little bit attuned to suffering around me and then part of it was my own i i wanted to help young people avoid the mistakes that i made yeah and i just thought if i could help somebody um do it different avoid pain and suffering for themselves and their families who love them then that would be a great thing to do that i mean that's what i wanted to do that had you personally life. gone through addiction Yes. 
Yeah. Yep. Because that can be a big driving force. Yeah, drug and alcohol. <clears throat> yeah. And so I, I was so grateful to climb out with help, mostly from my father in heaven, yeah. but from others, my wife and others. And I was able to climb out, and I wanted to help people who who have similar problems. Uh, and, and I don't care what problems they are. It yeah. <laughs> doesn't matter. Pain, suffering, depression, anxiety, yeah. self-hatred uh, is, is if I could do anything to help anyone, then that's what I want to do. Having been through it and having had all the training, do you think it gives you a unique perspective on people? Uh, possibly a little help with compassion because you know a little bit about what it's like. Yeah. Um, so maybe that might help a little bit with curbing down a little uh, stigma or judgment. I don't know. Yeah. For sure. So. But but I I mean, I, I, I know that I don't know what any of my clients have truly gone through. Mm. Yeah. It's all a personal, unique, and individual journey. Sure. But... But, I, I mean, having something similar... Yeah, sure. ...I think can be helpful. You got your bachelor's in psychology? I got a bachelor's in psychology with a minor in art and design, and then I got a master's degree in school psychology. Mm. Worked as a school psychologist and a high school counselor, and then went back and got a Ph.D. in psychology and a the equivalent of a master's in marriage and family therapy. Holy cow. So I just felt kind of unequal I wanted to do hard mental health and deal with complex issues and I felt kind of underprepared mm. and so I wanted to learn more and be mentored more and taught yeah. and so that's I, I kind of overdid it a, a little bit uh, I think that is Mike that is <laughs> but, so impressive um, so you worked in the schools for a little while mm -hmm. how was that experience I think that's the best job I've ever had in my entire life really oh yeah <laughs> Yeah. Having kids to, come to you? To be able to work with teenagers mm. uh, and to be in their lives every day and to be available and try to help them with their parents and their teachers. and It was so enjoyable. I loved it. Was that your first mental health job? Yes. How hard is it? You know, you're, you're sitting in your, I'm assuming, you know, again, I don't have any experience in this. I'm assuming you're absorbing some of these things, you know, you've got a kid who comes to you with some difficult stuff. Hey, I don't want to live anymore. This is going on in my home, my family. You get home at night. How do you shed that, Mike? How do you let that go? Um, time is a healing thing and a teacher, I think. So I, I know that in the beginning, I just wanted to talk and talk and talk to people, but I couldn't talk about what I had heard right? Uh, for confidentiality, but I could talk about how I felt and what I was going through. I talked about what I was going through with that with my wife, and that helped me a ton. Yeah. I think in the beginning I dreamt it, I slept it, I shed many tears. Um, I think over time I learned um, over many years, I think it was 37 years I've been in the field working, but... Mm. I finally learned to leave it on the shelf when I, and go home and and not have it be a part of my life. When I walked in the house, yeah, 
I could say I did everything I know how to do, and I honestly prayed on my way home and said, um, Heavenly Father, I did everything I could do to help this person or these people today, and so yeah. I'm handing it over to you. Yeah. And, um, and I was able to do that, to go home and not be in my mind and my heart with my patients, my clients, the students, whatever, yeah. anymore, but actually to be with my wife and be with my children. So I considered that a great blessing. Is there something in, in mental health professionals? Have you seen people who have had an inability to shed, to shed things that way? I assume there are some people that are naturally more, maybe don't have all the coping tools, or maybe that's taught in university where, where it is. But have you seen people who absorb so much of it? I, I don't know that I, you know, and again, I haven't been through any training, but I don't know that I could let go of it like that. I mean, have you seen people struggle, colleagues of yours? I've definitely seen people struggle, and definitely different personality types have a harder time leaving it at the door. Yeah. And some are more mechanical in their clinical um, offering and their training and the treatment that they give, and they seem to be able to let go a little tiny bit more. Mm. And some people are more emotionally based. They have they do more emotionally based therapy and yeah. relationship based therapies, and that's a little bit harder for them. I think it's hard for all, and um, I personally think that God blesses them for their efforts to help people by. Right. Helping take it away. I mean, you've heard of bishops, for example, who, you know, after serving as a bishop and they see people on the street, they don't remember those conversations they had yeah. about sins that people were trying to overcome sure. and repent of, and they don't remember some of the horrible stories and painful stories they heard. What they see is a beautiful person. Isn't that amazing? Uh, walking down the street whom they love, and those other memories don't come back. Yeah. And I've experienced the same thing with my patients. That's awesome. So, so after working with the schools, what, what came next in your career? Um, I um, worked, I went into hard mental health, worked at Utah Valley Regional Medical Center. What does that mean, hard mental health? Well... If somebody comes to you because they're um, suffering, because their child was hurt in an accident, they're going through a grieving process or fear or anxiety about their child, then that's just kind of everyday life problems. Mm -hmm. Hard mental health, when I say that, I mean people who have hard mental health diagnoses that are difficult yeah. to treat. Anorexia nervosa, um, psychosis of different kinds, bipolar disorder disorder, yeah, severe suicidal bouts that people may have, heart addiction. So, you know what I'm saying? I mean, mental yeah. health comes on, right. on a spectrum. Sure. There's problems that are lighter and problems that are heavier and problems that people can transcend completely. And there's mental illnesses that people will carry to their grave, but have to learn how to manage, can learn how to manage them better. But they're not going to go away. Yeah. And some mental illnesses can be completely, you can completely recover from them. So that's what I mean by hard mental right. health. It's just a more complex set 
of struggles. So when you're dealing with people and you see somebody has, they've got a disassociative disorder or they've got, you know, something where it's really like borderline personality, something really, and again, if I'm misusing a phrase, I mean, you know, I I don't know uh, that world as much, but how did you figure out faith at the time of these disorders? This, you know, you're working with people all day and you're a man of faith and you're looking at this is my heavenly father. This is one of their children. They're not functioning in life. How do, how do you make sense of all that, Mike? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, I mean, I figure that we've all been given challenges. Um, we all have challenges. We will have challenges. We will have illness. Maybe physical illness, maybe mental illness. Mm. Um, sometimes our choices make those things worse. Sometimes we're the victims of other people's actions. We don't get to vote. Um, I know that our Father in Heaven is crying with us. I think in some cases it's our Father's plan to have us go through experiences. Yeah. Because it's exactly what we need to learn to become who we might be. Yeah. Um, as Neil Maxwell once said, you know, we might have our own personal, personalized package of adversity <laughs> to help us become who we might become. Yeah. So I, I don't know the answers to all those questions, of course, but I believe that God does. And I, huh. my, my job is, is not to judge, or my job is to see if there's anything I can do yeah. to make their life easier, to help them learn how to make their life easier and find more joy and happiness. One of the things that, that uh, I know has been a message, it's, even, it's in your official bio, but also through talking with you, I know has been a message from you is, is this mix of spirituality and the importance of faith and spirituality uh, in mental health. And obviously there's, there's a medical side. You've had incredible training. Um, is it is it different when you're dealing with someone or with their family if they have a faith background than if they don't? Or how does that work? Does that make sense as a yeah. question? Well, first of all, there's plenty of research that shows that if people have spiritual beliefs and they bring those spiritual beliefs to bear in their efforts to recover from mental illness or addiction, that it's... it helps them that it's beneficial yeah part of that might be the idea that we're trying to treat the whole person Mm. and that includes their spirituality and so to divorce that from the rest of them is a fractionation of self which i don't find helpful (laughs) yeah And, and so i believe that spirituality is the most important part of a human being and so if we can help them use their own spiritual beliefs in the service of getting well, then it'll be a true blessing to them. And that doesn't supplant or take the place of evidence-based practice and, and best practices in, yeah. in, in, 
and modalities of treatment, but it's it's an additional piece that I think is very important. Spiritual sensitivity, yeah, I guess, and respect for people's spiritual and religious beliefs. You've spoken at major conferences on this theme. Yes. You've spoken on the importance of spiritual healing along with this. Have you ever had pushback from colleagues saying, hey, this these things are separate, or is it widely accepted in the mental health community that this is important? I think there's uh, <laughs> there's always pushback, but there's also a little bit of relief, you know? Yeah. Um, many people are afraid to talk about it because of the need for political correctness in the mental health field in general is huge. And so it's easy to say something wrong that might yeah. offend people. Uh, so a lot of people don't talk about it. I, I've found, uh, I've learned over time a language so I could talk about it without offending people mm. and letting them know that um, I'm open and I'm not trying to sell anything. Yeah. And I think that's very, very important. We're not trying to sell our spiritual beliefs yeah. to people. We're trying to help them honor their own and to live them and to not use their spiritual beliefs against themselves, but rather use their spiritual beliefs for mm, themselves, yeah. which is also hard for some people. You know, when you have guilt is a part of religious process sometimes, perfectionism. Sure. So to help people not use their beliefs against themselves is a part of this work. Mm. And you've practiced in Utah, which is a little bit different, but when you've been out in these national conferences and on these national stages, uh, has it ever come out that you're a Latter-day Saint, or has a colleague ever mentioned mentioned anything about your membership in the church in, in all this regard? Uh, you know, I have close colleagues um, around the country, um, almost all of which are not LDS. Yeah whom I love dearly and they love me. And yeah. they know of my religion and my efforts to be faithful in it, <laughs> my commitment to it. Sure. Because we've had open conversations about those things. But I think in general, me being an LDS person has not been a topic of conversation. Gotcha. People don't ask me. Yeah. You know, I, I've almost never been asked by other professionals or by my patients, are you LDS? You know, yeah. Are you? Are you? It just doesn't come up. Doesn't really come up. When did when did uh, you start to specialize in uh, eating disorders? And I don't know if that's the right phrase for it, um, but you've done a lot of work, and I want to talk about Center for Change. Yeah. Um, but you've done a lot of work in that realm. Is eating disorders the right kind of umbrella phrase for that? Yes, there's a, an industry of treating e eating disorders, and it's very specialized, and that's yeah. why there is kind of a, a separate field for it. How did you get into that? I got into it because when I started in my career, you know, I was doing practicums at a, the comprehensive clinic in Provo, and um, where they assign you patients to see, and you don't get to vote on the clients that you have. Mm. And this was back in the in the early 80s, or in the 80s. And um, in the clinic, th nobody wanted to see people with eating disorders because no one knew what to do with them. Huh. So they felt incredibly stupid and inadequate because there wasn't a lot of good data on how to do treatment. And so in the clinic, I was the new person, didn't get to vote. And so every time someone with an eating disorder came, they said, give them to Mike. 
give them to Mike. <laughs> and so I had some pretty tough patients, and I learned to really love them and respect them. So yeah. that's the first place it started. Of course, I was treating people with all other kinds of problems, too, right. at the same time. And the same thing being a high school counselor, when people would come in, uh, suicide attempts, depression, using drugs, uh, oftentimes what you would find the in there is an eating disorder, either anorexia or bulimia or compulsive eating, uh, binge eating. And oftentimes there would be trauma, most often sexual trauma. Mm. And so that became a mainstay, it seems, of the treatment that I've done has been eating disorders and, and also sexual trauma has been yeah. a big part of that. And for people with severe eating disorders, they often, not always, but often they will go together. Yeah. So, so people with eating disorders have many other There's a lot else. Problems, yeah. yeah. Anxiety, depression, trauma. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot else going on. What year did you start Center for Change? We started our company that created Center for Change in 94, and we opened our hospital in 1996. Mm. So we ran that for about... 25 years what was that process like starting starting a whole business was that scary very scary yeah and you started with partners started with partners i was doing a private practice uh, i did a private practice for eight years mm. and um then me and a couple of my partners thought well we can't do the kind of treatment we need to with severe cases i guess we're gonna have to start a hospital so we can treat the people who are, are suffering with with hard cases and so that's what we did and i i started we started a business with six of us there were six partners a physician and four psychologists and a business guy what was it like that first day you open up your doors uh, my memory is uh, we had 32 employees and no patients <laughs> <laughs> An empty million-dollar building, oh, and just Mike. hoping like crazy that our, we wouldn't lose everything. Yeah. After paying some payrolls with personal credit cards and, you know, going through rough times, uh, eventually we had one patient in a group, and there would be two or three of us therapists in there doing group therapy with it's one Very person. personalized. Yeah, they kind of got ganged up on, but... Or I could say they got some good quality care. Yeah, they got some specialized help. But anyways, that's how we started. And when I retired a year ago, we were full. We had, uh, I think, 56 beds, and we were full with a waiting list. And, and Center for Change is an inpatient? Like Center for Change is an inpatient hospital and also all levels of care. It's yeah. in Orm, Utah. You know, outpatient day patient, intensive outpatient. And then we also have satellite programs, day programs or partial hospitalization programs mm. in Boise, Idaho and in Salt Lake in the Cottonwood Heights. And when I say you're a respected, you know, specialist in this field and in the field of mental health generally, you have been an expert on Dr. Phil. What's that experience like? <laughs> And how did that happen? It was how do you end up on Dr. Phil? I had a friend uh, who I worked with. She worked with us. She was a, a, a wonderful woman who recovered from an eating disorder. Her name is Jenny Schaefer. Mm. 
She wrote a famous book called Life Without Ed. She told her story of recovery. We became friends. She worked with us, and she was on Dr. Phil, and he was promoting her book. And so some t she told Dr. Phil about me and our place and our treatment and what we were trying to do. And so we went on his show and met with patients and treated some clients off of his show. What was yeah. that like? What's that experience? It's pretty weird. You know, they pick you up in a little... <laughs> a little Cadillac or a Lincoln at the airport yeah. and take you to your hotel and pick you up in the morning and they dress you and put a tie on you and put makeup on you and then you're <laughs> going out there and you know that there's going to be 15 million people listening to what you say and uh, it, it's pretty stressful. But but anyways, it was a true honor to be. I really enjoyed him and his wife. They're wonderful people. I enjoyed being on the show and, and, and hopefully... You know, somebody watched it where they got something out of it or where they found treatment, Yeah, whether it was at our place or a different place, and it was a true honor. Got to be cool to show uh, kids and grandkids. Yeah, I actually never have. But, <laughs> <laughs> but So is there, you know, you look back at helping all these people, there are going to be listeners right now who either have an eating disorder or maybe don't know it, or maybe they, whatever, or have someone in their lives who they suspect, or maybe they know for sure, and they don't know what to do. What, what advice do you have if someone either has a family member or themselves, or is that too broad of a question? No, I think that's a great question. I think the first thing is to just be honest and to... It's not our job to diagnose problems with people. I think it's our job to, and our opportunity, I guess, not our job, but to go to them and say, hey, I've noticed this, or I've observed this, or I sense this, or I'm worried about this, or are you struggling? Really, you know, just going to I somebody think. and just being that open. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, if it's out of love, you can't go wrong. Huh. I mean, yeah, they might not. True. They might not take it well. Yeah. They might be defensive. The more sure. defensive they are, the more right on you are. <laughs> you know that there's something there if they take a kind gesture as something hostile. You know they're really suffering and struggling. So that can be a clue. But to just go and say, we don't go to people and say, "Hey, you're massively depressed," or "I think you have an anxiety disorder," or "I think you're an addict," or "I think you're." have an eating disorder, whatever, we go mm. to people and say, I've noticed this, and I'm concerned about you, and I love you. How are you doing? Are you worried about this? Are you worried about you? What are you worried about? How can I help you? And then, so we join them where they are. We don't diagnose and label and try to I fit love them that. Into a box. We join them where they are. Um, have you had, are there, are there one or multiple or whatever patience that in your heart you guys weren't able to reach that you look back that kind of keeps you maybe it's in the back of your mind the back of your heart absolutely and it, it breaks my heart if you're in this field for 30 or 40 years you you see people die and uh, and you recognize we don't know enough i don't know enough you know, we don't know enough as a field as well, and people do die, and people commit suicide. 
and people die of drug overdoses. And you, you cannot save everyone, you cannot reach everyone. And but we can do the very, very best that we can. And yeah. I, I mean, luckily, um, there's many more people walking around who have been helped, who are yeah. got their life back, and they're doing great, than they are people who, who never could quite reach. Uh, they never quite responded to treatment, mm. or they actually um, died from their illnesses. Over the years at Center for Change, is there kind of one story? Is there one patient or, or story that you can hold up that you think, yeah, here is an amazing story of recovery? Uh, man, there's too many. Uh, there's yeah. thousands of stories. There's thousands and thousands of stories of recovery. Yeah. None really truly comes to mind. Mm. I, I think that, you know, as you said that, there was about 20 that came to my mind. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, first of all, we have to look at recovery in that if people learn how to hate themselves less, that's a step in recovery. And recovery is not a place to get to. It's a process. Mm. You know, and, and so if, if, if somebody hates themselves less or the loud voices of self-hatred and rumination become quieter, Mm. and they have more moments of peace, that is a true blessing of healing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and like I said, so is it so people will never have any anxiety anymore? Well, I don't <laughs> think so. Not for a lot of people with anxiety disorders. Sure. You know, but if, if it can be quieter, if they can do the things that they want to do, if they can have more peace and smile and have joy, yeah. and have mastery over the anxiety rather than have it control their entire life, then that's, that's recovery. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, and, then, like, and, and then, yes, people can get to the point where, for example, with eating disorders where they, I've had patients say, when I've asked them, I see people around in the, in the store, and sometimes they'll approach me, hey, Dr. B, how are you doing? You know, if no one's around, I'll... If they approach me, I'll talk to them. I don't approach my past clients yeah. for confidentiality reasons. But but a lot of times in the conversation, I will say, after I've heard, how you doing and how's your family, what you up to, they'll say, I'll say to them, um, how's your eating disorder or how's your depression? And a lot of times they'll say to me something like this, what eating disorder? What eating disorder? I haven't thought about that for Five years, ten wow. years, twenty years, twenty-five years, and it's just so remarkable to see what they have done. What a blessing! And, and truly, uh, the way I view it is that that's what God has done, and that's what they have done. And, yeah. and, and we get to be this teeny, teeny piece of that. And it's just so gratifying to see that people's hard work and their willingness to not give up really pays off. So I I have nothing but hopefulness, truly. Oh, that's beautiful. That people can get well. There's, um, I listened to a specialist uh, on eating disorders about two years ago, three years ago, and he was putting across the idea that, that part of the problem with treating eating disorders, one, is that they're much more common than people think, but two, is that 
drugs we may not know about. Like, I don't know about drug addiction. I assume it's terrible. I mean, I, I know people have been through it, you know, but I don't do drugs. And so I, I can't really go down that path, mm-hmm. but everybody eats. And so his perception was there's sort of a, oh, you have an eating disorder. Well, stop binge eating or stop making yourself throw up or st- just stop. I do it. Yeah. I control it. Right. I have to eat. And yet I control it. Is, is that sort of stigma part of the battle? Do you see that? Yes, definitely. Uh, it's been viewed as a willful, free choice, simple choice that people make to self-destruct. Yeah. And if they would just make a different choice, they would be fine. And why don't they make a different choice? What's wrong with those people? Yeah, that. I, I mean, I just think, as you said, that's just the voice of an un, uneducated person who doesn't truly understand the complexity and the depth of the illness and... And to and get out, to get it out there, an, an eating addiction is an addiction like any other. It's a full in in the mental health world. It, it's a full addiction that needs to be treated like any any addiction. Yes, the difference is is it's usually not called addiction. And yeah. So, uh, you know, there's controversy over the use of that term with eating disorders. Mm. Uh, so we we don't call it an addiction. But is it an addictive process? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it gets in the way of all aspects of life and hampers and harms a per, every area of a, of a person's life. And one, one definition of addictions was that if, if we're involved in a process, a relationship with a substance, a person, a process, a pattern of living that's self-destructive but we keep doing it anyway yeah then that's an addiction right that definitely fits into that but with eating disorders there's often underlying issues and Mm -hmm. the most common one is is undiagnosed anxiety disorders is often there for patients and was often there way before the Mm. eating disorder ever came along yeah the eating disorder becomes one way of dealing with um unrelenting anxiety and then they have two illnesses hmm. to deal with instead of one. Sometimes trauma has a role in there for some people as well, depression. And so, yes, it's everything from putting a video camera in any home, watching people go to the kitchen when they're bored, which all boredom is, is the presence of, of unwanted feelings. Yeah, sure. Sadness, grief anger, nervousness, whatever it is. And people people go to the kitchen. Now, everything from that to the nth extreme where people are eating 500 calories a day and literally starving to death. Heartbreaking. And, so, and if people see that someone has this, someone in their life, they, they, they worry that they're struggling, they go to them with your approach, which I think is beautiful, of I'm worried, are you worried? how can I help, whatever. When you're dealing with someone who either is in denial or doesn't want to change, what's next? What's the next step? I've now gone to somebody and said, I'm worried about you. You know, here's what, here's what my concern is. Or, you know, are you worried? How can I help? Whatever. No, I'm fine. Leave me alone. I'm fine. But if you see somebody wasting away or you see somebody that, 
is manifesting these types of behaviors, what's the next step or is there a next step beyond prayer and keeping the open communication? Well, I think there always has to be another step. And I think what we don't do, what isn't helpful is to say, well, it's their choice. I don't want to impinge on their agency. Yeah. They can stay in this illness if they want to. I, uh, that's not we, what we do when we love people. We try to intervene in their lives in any way we can. Sure. And so I, I think the next step is uh, encouraging people to go see professionals, telling them you'll go with them encourage them let's just go one session if you hate it after that we'll let you off the hook yeah any leverage that you can use on somebody and and then uh, there's interventions where you can have families get together around a person and and bombard them with love and Mm. support with a room full of people sometimes that's very effective in getting people to say okay i'll take a step sometimes if you can get away with it you say we're going to the doctor today get in the car Mm. I will not take no for an answer. You will get in the car. Wow. And So you know what I'm saying. So any leverage you have to get it done, to get them into treatment, yeah. they're scared to death, and they need help. And uh, wishing that they'll get help won't do it. And sometimes, we'll, sometimes we've tried everything we know how to do, uh, even posing the question of going to court and getting custody over them because they can't make good decisions for themselves i mean Mm. you can go to the nth degree but at the end of the day people may die from their illness and that's the sad part of it but we have to we we have to be able to go to bed and say i did everything i could i yeah i make great great efforts they're worth it so you're now at a phase, a time in your life that I look forward to. You know, you're, you and Karen have been married a long time. I know uh, uh, a couple of your kids. I know Johnny pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I know a few of your kids. You've got this great family. You've got all these awesome grandkids. What's next for Mike Barrett? What's next? You've been retired for a year now. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Semi-retired, really. Yeah. I retired from my hospital job and I'm doing a little consulting and writing um what came to mind right there was fading into the sunset I mean (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure what that really means I'm trying to figure it out figure this retirement thing out is it hard is it hard after after that many years of getting up and you know you know what you're going to do all day I still get up and I know what I'm going to do like I have a list I mean yeah. It, it's um, I'm very active. I'm very busy. I have a list, a to-do list, uh, three miles long, you know. And I retired m- so that I could spend time with my wife and my children and grandchildren. Period. That was the yeah. that was the goal. I'm kind of a workaholic, mm-hmm. and so <laughs> I needed to spend some great time with them, and, and that's why I retired. And that's what I'm doing. Awesome. I mean, I, I'm still I'm working about 15 hours a week. Right now, writing and and creating um, clinical treatment for professionals is what I'm working on right now, too, on, on a consulting job. So um, I'm enjoying that. Yeah. What's nice about it is I'm just as busy as I've ever been in my life. But wow. I, I don't have stress. That's great. I'm not worried about running a business. And, and Thunderbuck Ram? 
we'll be doing about five or six outdoor gigs this summer. We're nice. a glorified backyard band. <laughs> And we're going to enjoy that, ride that out till we can't play anymore. I'll be there for one or two of them. Thank so you so much. I love yeah. it, man. I just think it's so <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Mike, you have blessed so many, and there's a lot that you would never talk about about yourself, but having seen you in our ward and just the force for good that you and Karen are, it's a real blessing and I feel blessed to know you. So I appreciate it. We're going to wrap up uh, the conversation question we ask all of our guests and that is mike what does being a member of the church mean to you uh it means everything to me um if it wasn't for uh, my belief in christ and my good parents who taught us and my commitment to him and living his gospel and being members of this restored church i literally would be dead and i wouldn't be here it means everything to me so i'm going to keep on trying keep on striving to improve and become who i can become and uh, try to do a little good in the world and uh, that's Along with my family, that's and doing a little good here and there, that's my life. So. He is a husband, a father, a grandfather, now retired, and a true specialist in the uh, incredibly complex world of mental health. Mike, thank you for coming on and sharing your latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. It's an honor to be, to be on your show. Thank you so much, Sean. And my thanks to my dear friend, Mike Barrett. He is so inspiring. And the number of lives that he has saved and the people he has helped. And he's just a quiet, good servant and such a smart guy. I really enjoyed sitting down with him. So thank you again, Mike. Uh, This week in my Latter-day Life, you know, here we are in January. It's been a few weeks uh, since we've had an episode uh, but And I've been very busy. You know, we had the Consumer Electronics Show for my job out in Las Vegas. Uh, but I, I did have some, some peaceful time to relax over the holidays. And something that uh, I really got serious about a few months ago uh, is yoga. I found that I have fallen in love with yoga, and I do it every single day. And I really enjoy it. And I've got this program I belong to. I stream it from my iPad and it's something I can follow in my home. And I've seen some huge differences. My back problems have gone away and I just feel stronger and healthier. It's been great. And uh, I noticed on Facebook, there are some groups for this yoga program that I do. And I noticed there was one that popped up suggested that was a 100 day challenge. The challenge was to do 100 days in a row of yoga. So I decided to try it. I started, I don't know, a couple weeks before January 1st, and I joined this group to see what other people were doing. And by the way, I'm still in it today, uh, Sunday, as I'm recording this. Today was uh, day 34. I had a nice, just simple Sunday stretch this morning. But uh, 34 days in a row, and it's it's been wonderful. What was funny was leading up to the first 
uh, that two weeks. I didn't know most people were going to start it on January 1st. So on the end of December 28th, 29th, 30th, you saw a lot of posts of, okay, getting ready to start my 100 days, getting ready to start. And this particular app that I use for yoga, um, it tells you how many people are currently using the app or whatever, not at that moment, but are, are registered. And then it ranks you. I don't know why, and I have no idea how they calculate it all. But I noticed that my rank as I was being consistent every day kept going up. And at one point, I was like 900 out of 45,000 people, something like that. There are some people that go really hard. I only do one program a day. But uh, but I was at something like 900. And then there was New Year's Eve. And the next day, of course, New Year's Day. I didn't get on to do yoga New Year's Day until, I don't know, 2 or 3 in the afternoon. And I looked down and I saw my rank. I was suddenly ranked number 3,400 some odd. And wow, there are a lot of people doing a lot of yoga all of a sudden, which I thought was wonderful. But then what was funny was I noticed on Facebook the next day, people posting in this 100-day challenge, oh, I blew it, I missed yesterday, or I didn't start, or I blew it today. And that started to happen on the second, the third, the fourth, every day, people saying, well, I blew it, I guess it's all over, never mind, I'm leaving the group, I'm you know, quitting, whatever it is. I also noticed I went from being number 3,500 to number 2,000 to 1,500, and now I'm back in the 800 or 900 range. And I thought how silly and sad it is that we make these resolutions for New Year's, and then if we blow it, that's it. It's all over. And everybody makes New Year's resolutions that I know or something. You know, it's a good time. It's a wonderful time to think about how we want to change our lives and what we want to do next. But I think the joy in the gospel is that you don't have to set resolutions at a specific time. You don't have to do it at the beginning of the year. You don't have to do it any certain time. The gospel is all about striving to be better every single day. And I think the most wonderful thing is people have their New Year's resolutions, and then you'll see them say, oh, I broke it, so it's all over for the year. Never mind. Well, the great thing about repentance is when we break our resolutions or the things we're trying to do better in our lives, we can then pray. We can ask for forgiveness. Whatever it is we're trying to do better, if we sin, if we fall short, we can always pray to our Heavenly Father, and in that moment, We can reset our resolution. One minute later, we can restart. And if it's something more serious, we take that sacrament, and the sacrament helps cleanse us. And if it's something more serious than that, we talk to our bishop, and maybe we need to talk to a stake president or take care of it through the appropriate channels. But there is always, always a path back. And so we don't need to look at these big year-long resolutions or anything else. And it is fun. It's certainly fun to do these things. And it's wonderful to make ourselves better. But let's not get down if here we are a few weeks into January and we feel like we've broken everything we're trying to do. The Savior has not given up on us. He is there. And we have that opportunity to resolve once again to do that much better. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day Life. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. We're glad to be back. If you want to reach out to me, I can be reached at sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N 
at latterdaylives.com. We are on Facebook. We are on Instagram. Please go check us out there. And again, thank you so much for all the kind messages and the wonderful reviews. So that's about it for this week. So until next week, please remember, as always, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.